This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. I've reached the pinnacle of this career, and I can just keep doing this for the next 10, 20, 30 years and be very, you know, hopefully successful at it and make a lot of money. And But I will be knowingly a contributor to this problem. I can't, I can no longer not know that. Yeah. It's like that known, yeah. known things. Once you know it, you can't unknow it. And it was something that I think it was ultimately then, what is causing this? Why is this happening? And it goes to that point you exactly you made is we had created a whole system that allowed for companies to not take any responsibility for those consequences. It was in mundane the things as accounting systems and SEC regulations, those things were made externalities. So they were not right. things the company had to think about because they didn't affect the bottom line. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. Imagine, if you will, that you're an investment manager at a trillion-dollar firm, leading your own group and managing a $20 billion portfolio. You travel the world scouting new trends and researching companies to invest in and hobnob with all the biggest names in business at global conferences. You're pulling in a big salary and have a lovely young family. Life is very good indeed. And then one day, you realize you really have to walk away from it all. I'm not talking a, I need a new wife and red sports car moment. Something much bigger, much deeper. What in the world could make you do that? On today's podcast, you'll hear one man's tale of just such a moment. Tim Dunn will share what it was that dawned on him in 2009 prompting him to walk away from that $20 billion portfolio and embark on a five-year learning journey that led to the creation of a new company with a unique model for investing, one that's proving that it is possible for environmental and economic gains to coexist. By the way, you'll notice a few moments of wonky internet connection and maybe the sounds of dog paws clacking on the floor during our conversation. Tim and his slightly hyper pup were at his beach house when we connected. Appreciate your forbearance on this one and hope you enjoy the conversation. Mm-hmm. 
So, Tim, good morning. It's so great to have this chance to talk with you at some length. We're usually just together doing business stuff. Exactly. It's a pleasure. <laughs> you and I have met principally through your current venture, Terra Alpha Investment, and, and indirectly through our mutual friend, otherwise known as your wife, Ellen Stofan. And there's so much I'm interested to chat with you about concerning you know, green investing and the movement in the investment world towards greater focus on environment, sustainability, or social and governance, ESG. But before we get there, let's start with who Tim Dunn is and how he came to be the, the man that's talking with me now. I found an article you wrote recently that confesses that you're, you were born 59 years ago, which would make that 1962... 61, because my birthday's coming up in September, so I'll be 60 this September. Excellent. Um, who was the young Tim Dunn? Where, where did you grow up? What was your family like? Tell me about this young boy. Suburban D.C., so I was sort of grew up in a political world. D.C. back then, everything was about politics pretty much. It's still somewhat that way, but not completely. I was younger, youngest of three boys. My father's a lawyer in D.C., but not in the government side, in the tax and trust stuff. And my uh, mother was probably a unhappy stay-at-home mother. Uh, well, was an unhappy stay-at-home mother. So I would say she was uh, she was a suburban housewife, but not by by necessarily her design, but by that was by outcome. And that's kind of relevant. I'll come back to that. And we grew up in a very um, an area that was kind of on the edge of of real woods and real you know nature. We had a couple of acres, and it was so like. But we uh, were, grew up just going out and being out in the wild all day, especially in the summer times or in the evening. So a lot of freedom. My favorite thing was going down the hill and playing in the stream, looking for crayfish and tossing rocks and, you know, just hanging out. So that was kind of my childhood. And I was a skateboarder and all that stuff back in the 60s that you did. Some things come back in full circle. <laughs> and, you know, I was pretty normal kid playing sports three boys you play a lot of sports and yeah. everything every moment free moment and uh, my father worked all the time and we were kind of self-sufficient actually going back to the circle of things my mother uh, died in when I was 13 ah. and kind of a combination of life getting to her kind of things so we were really independent so growing up it was pretty much make my own way to things to most things in life so we still had a very safe and you know, well-off financial position, but it was sort of definitely more, not a lot of parental oversight. You didn't have a housekeeper or a nanny or aunt or grandmother join the household to help with these three rebellious young boys? No, I mean, actually, at the time, my brother, my oldest brother had gone off to college. He was a freshman in college, and my old, next older brother was in high school, and we were already, told my father, we're, we're good. We got this. And <laughs> my father, being my father, bless his soul, um, pretty much just went back to work. And so that was what it was. And I, you know, at the time, thought I'd be a lawyer because my father did and his brother, and there was other things. And so that was sort of natural. And I went into college thinking I would become a a lawyer of some sort and realized that I didn't really want to do that. And I, I kind of gravitated towards wanting to do foreign policy and be involved in, you know, the State Department or something like that. Again, classic what you do if you're growing up in the DC area, you want to and you want to discover the world, you you think about foreign, foreign service. service. Yeah. And but with all your outdoors growing up and I guess didn't you as a family used to spend some time in places like the Finger Lakes, with all of that, nothing triggered in you to maybe want to be a scientist and study those things for a living? 
You know, I loved being outside. And, and as you said, I mean, I, we did a lot. We did a lot of drive, a couple of cross-country drives as a family, seeing all the national parks. I did a camp when I was, I think, 14, where we were canoeing through the Finger Lakes and then went sailing in the, you know, along the St. Lawrence Seaway. I just loved being outside. I mean, it was always outside, but but there was no no one in my family who was science was a thing. Science was such a lofty area, and I, I never really thought it was something that was something I would do. So then, the closest I got to being involved with science was when I met Helen. <laughs> and I, then I got really close to science in a non-academic <laughs> way, just in a very personal way. Um, but I was always interested in the actual nature of the world, but not necessarily understanding, you know, yeah. diving into understanding it. I, you know, maybe it took it for granted. Yeah. And yeah. you just think, well, nature's there. And thinking at the time, there were about 3 billion people on the planet. And we'd not had Earth Day yet, not the Apollo missions yet, which I think helped start to shift the consciousness about what's that great line? We went to the moon and discovered Earth. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think there was a lot of just like, well, we take it for granted that we have plenty of all this. And, you know, at the time we did, we actually lived within the boundaries of our planet's resources. And we weren't, there were many environmental issues, of course. Uh, certainly, you know, I was, you know, it was three mile island, big environmental issue. You know, a lot of the, uh, you know, major uh, waste dump areas from nuclear programs, weapons programs and others. But uh, and also a number of just industrial issues. But they were relatively small scale in the scheme of the world. Yeah. But they were around, but not these global challenges that, you know, Earth Day and other things developed. Of course, it wasn't too long, you know, when I was in high school, I think, was when the famous Cuyahoga River. So you had things like that happening. And I, my, in my family, uh, my grandparents all lived in Pittsburgh. And certainly we would go to visit Pittsburgh at the time. And you knew you were arriving at Pittsburgh. You smelt it. I mean, yeah. it was, you could see it in the air. You could smell it. It was an industrial town at its very core. And so I was certainly aware of the impact of these things. But again, it wasn't until really later in my life that I started really putting all the pieces together and kind of seeing where we were going. So I was not, I mean, the big issues of the day when I was growing up was, of course, the Cold War. Yeah, hiding under desks. Yeah. So that's the thing you were thought about. This is not a good thing. This is, a, you know, we're on the verge of something terrible. What role can I play to stopping that? So that was really the connection to foreign policy. Because when you, as you said, when you're hiding under the desks to practice for a nuclear attack, <laughs> you know, part of you is going, this makes no sense at all. Right. I don't know how this going to help me. Uh, and the other is, how do we get to this place? So actually, yeah. when I was in college, I, that was one of my areas of focus was to, uh, nuclear uh, arms treaties. I was an international relations major at college. Were you a good student through your school years and college years? <laughs> Eager, active, or sort of, you know, smart enough to just coast by or... I was probably smart enough to coast by with not very good grades. So put it that way. I wasn't like, you know, I went to a decent, you know, high school, but everyone at William Mary went to a good high school and was top of their class. And so all of a sudden, you know, you realize, okay, there's a different group of people here. And frankly, my first couple of years, I wasn't as motivated because I was taking a lot of courses. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with that information because it's a liberal arts program that you took a lot of things and some of it interested me, some of it didn't. And I was one of those kids that's like, if it wasn't really interesting to me, I wasn't going to be committed to doing the work. So you had to go through those first two year course. Everybody had to go through those as a broad education. And then you could start to focus on the courses you thought you were interested in. 
Yeah, it was a combination of as you start to get into the middle of your college years, you start to realize this is this gig's going to end and I've got to actually do something <laughs> afterwards. And there's no there's no next step. That's not like me going out and finding the next step, uh, which motivated me. I met Ellen my junior year in college and she was in the library. So that's where we hung out. So there's not much else to do in the library, but study. So I started studying more, but I also started taking classes that really kind of interests me. And some of them were still the political science government courses that I've been taking, but I started taking more econ classes. And particularly one that I took in international trade and finance was, you know, I can pinpoint that was the moment I went from saying, I'm going to do foreign policy to I'm going to do something in the financial markets. Why? Was that a mandatory course? I guess two questions. Were you compelled to take that course for your major or was it an elective? And you were clearly motivated to make a difference in the foreign policy world. What what was it that was so compelling about this new domain that you wanted to shift and apply your efforts there instead? It was an elective and I did choose it, but I didn't know necessarily what I was getting into. It just seemed like something different and you know, it was better than Econ 101. I mean, I didn't really love Econ 101 and 102. Those aren't, no one thinks of those as being the most exciting classes. But this seemed like I can understand something, learn something about the world that I didn't know much about. I didn't grow up as a kid who paid attention to Wall Street and read, you know, the Wall Street Journal. I was reading the Washington Post and politics and issues like that. But then the reason I was thinking foreign policy was the power of, you know, that was where there's a lot of power. You could influence, cause change, affect change on a global scale. So that was interesting to me and being part of that. When I took the international trade and finance class, it really opened up to realize this other world that had a less visible but really big impact on the world, which is the capital markets. And that system that underlies our economy and drives a lot of action. And that was the thing that really struck me as, wow, this is like a whole world that I didn't know anything about. And it seems like it's got even potentially more impact on the world than foreign policy. Hmm. But it's kind of shadowy, right? So I wanted to understand that. So that got me interested in that whole world. And then I decided to focus going to business school out of undergrad because I had a a perfectly, a very good liberal arts degree in the ninth, graduating in 1983 which was the time of the what was called the jobless recovery mm. in the 80s. And there were very few jobs. Um, and for someone who had a degree like mine, it, the opportunity set was not exciting. So I was fortunate enough to decide to go to business school and kind of carry on learning more about the capital markets and how that system whole works and then thinking about what I wanted to do in it. So that was, it was really a decision that it was, that seems like a really interesting place that it kind of clicked with me. And I hadn't thought of myself as being mathematically oriented, or but I did well in those classes. And I realized it was a part of my, it's a different kind of math. It's not really complex math. It's not calculus. Yeah. It's yeah. not calculus. It's definitely not calculus, but it's still <laughs> understanding and being comfortable with the currency, literally currency. Yeah. So if you go to B-School with that sense of where you want to end up in the global trade and finance I mean, my sense of B-School is the probably classic stereotypical sense of it's all balance sheets and it's, it's sort of the mechanics of of budgeting and auditing. What course, what school did you go to and how robustly was it able to open the rest of that world to you? Does it 
actually teach you more about markets than balance sheets and trade flows than balance sheets? Or is it something you can tailor a bit as an MBA student? So a couple of things. One, um, just to get a sense of where I went to school and all that, keeping in mind that I, the first two years in college, I wasn't particularly focused on my academics, the degree I was. Also, by the way, I was playing soccer. So I was, ah. you know, had my other thing I was very interested in doing. So I spent a lot of time on the soccer pitch. So my grades were not as great as they could have been. And I ended up going to what I charmingly refer to as the fifth best business school in Boston. <laughs> Most people I say that to who kind of understand the business school world in Boston say, oh, you went to Northeastern. Um, oh, really? It's that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty clear. Well, everyone knows what one and two is, and it gets a little yeah. bit. It's yes. And maybe it's fourth best now. And Northeastern had two things that were really helpful. One, like Many of the leading business schools, it's they teach on a case methodology, and I'll come back to that. And the second is Northeastern's whole program, undergrad and graduate, is a cooperative program, which means that everyone as part of their program does a work role for a, a period work, of time. Work study kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so literally in the business school program, you did it's a quarter system. So you did two quarters of like your primary required courses, and then you did two quarters where you worked at a company and that company hired and school program started every six months. There was always a cohort available. So you would fill a, a full, an actual role at a company that someone else from Northeastern had been in before. And so that was actually a really great way to kind of actually have real work experience as you came out of the program. What company? A company called Yankee Atomic, which is a nuclear engineering consulting firm. And they manage the fuel operations of four different nuclear power plants in New England. Wow. And so it was a really interesting, I was in the nuclear fuel cycle department where we monitored and forecasted costs around the contracts, the long-term contracts, the nuclear plants had signed up to for their yellow cake and the nuclear enriching enrichment process, uranium enrichment process. So it was a kind of an interesting thing to be doing. Um, they actually, you know, it was like, this was back in the mid eighties. So they had a couple of computers and they did some basic modeling of things, but it was not super sophisticated, but most of the nuclear industry, all the pricing of yellow cake and which, and uranium was off of oil prices. Oh, just tied to that explicitly or tied, yeah. Cause they had 10, 20 year contracts. So they just wow. tied it to that, which you can imagine after going through the seventies, meant that these contracts were really not very economical. So the 70s, because oil prices soared in the 70s, and you're suddenly paying way more than you thought for the yellow cake mineral, the ore that's going to become your uranium and your fuel rods. Yeah. And these are take or pay contracts. It was really interesting to work there. It was interesting to work in a big company. Well, a smaller company that operates in a big infrastructure. That was actually a really important part of it. But back to your original question, the case methodology basically means no matter what class you're taking, if it's a marketing class, it's a finance class, it's an operations class, uh, management class, you are given cases that have been written up about a company and some issue that's relevant to the subject of that course. So maybe it's a marketing class in Southwest Airlines, and they're talking about their first advertising campaigns back in the day, which were famous for yeah. their- And revolutionary. And ref, yeah. So it was things like that. And that was, to me, was so fascinating because what I learned in that process is I was really interested to figure out how like an airline out like Southwest 
change the narrative about what an airline would really be because the audit your audience may not know but that was a period of time the industry had just deregulated and prior to that basically there was controlled markets and airlines owned the certain network allocated flights from certain airports and they the pricing was all set and they had no incentive to be particularly nice or enjoyable airlines because it was all regulated but that had all been broken up in the 70s i think and suddenly there was competition. You, suddenly you could make your own path and decide about your identity and your character, your brand. Yeah. So, so effectively, what you know, I think about this in hindsight, their advertising was all about how happy their employees were and they made being on the plane really fun. And the CEO of Southwest Airlines was actually thinking about ESG stuff before people talked about it in a way because the core... The really valuable thing about ESG is he understood that if he treated his employees better than other airlines, they would treat their customers better. The customers would then enjoy the experience and come back. And be more loyal. Yeah. So it was actually just creating, you know, he did other things too. He used the same exact same airplane, a 737 for all of his flights. He did that cost, kept their costs down. He did a bunch of really smart things, but ultimately he made a, the experience for everyone you know, pleasant, which may, meant they created a much more enduring airline. And it was great for the shareholders, too. Yeah, it's interesting. I never thought of that early play by Herb Kelleher as a, a first ESG, you know, a hard-nosed businessman needing to run profit and loss and make payroll, but it, putting a priority on the environment or on social attributes or on the quality of governance instead of just on Nicholson Sense and the bottom line. Yeah. So it was the, the case methodology of business school that, in a way, what it also exposed me to was thinking about, again, companies that might be in the same industry doing what appears to be the same thing, but having very different outcomes for their shareholders, for their customers, for everyone. And to me, that was, I was intrigued with the idea of, of wanting to know more about how to do that work of determining which of those, which companies, because, you know, obviously companies are very good at creating a good impression of themselves, but there is a big difference between how they manage things like their employees or their community or just how much attention they pay to safety. I mean, those things really ultimately matter. They often sometimes cost a little bit more upfront, but they actually create value long-term. So I was kind of introduced to that world, which kind of led me to think about, okay, I could, I want to do this. I want to understand companies. I want to be, have a I, there, I learned that there were careers where you could actually get paid for assessing companies and or helping companies around how they deal with these issues. So you could be in a management consultant, you could be an investment banker, or you could be in the asset management business where you do that kind of work. And ultimately, I decided to go into the asset management business because to me, that seemed like the way you could be directly compensated for how well you actually made that assessment. So let's pause for a second, and um, this is a selfish question because I would say I have a pretty good understanding, certainly of what what it means to be doing management consulting, and a grasp of you know what does be an investment banker mean, what does be an asset manager mean, but maybe everybody doesn't, uh, or maybe I'm the only one who doesn't deeply understand. Give me a sense of what is involved in being an investment banker versus an asset manager? What are you doing if, if that's your title? I mean, in both cases, you 
develop understanding of companies. And in one case, you're helping a company access the markets to raise capital. So as an investment banker, your job is to help the company develop the, the case for reaching out to investors. So the investment banking is what's referred to as the sell side because they are selling opportunity to invest in companies to asset managers and the general public. So I'm at a company that needs $100 million for a new product or a new factory. I, I engage an investment banker to help me create the compelling story for why you ought to want to help me do that. And then go find the customers, the asset managers or other other banks that will give you the loan. Exactly. I mean, you have to go through you know, to figure out which part of the capital markets you can raise debt or equity. If you're going to do a public or something in the, to the general public, you need to do an SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission registration. You have to do all that work. But also, before you even get to there, a company will say, well, we need to, we think we need to raise some money because we need to do these things. And then they will shop around different investment banks. So part of the investment banker's job is to convince the company to use them. Got it. Just like a, if you're going to a bank, a, a loan officer might, yeah. if you're trying to provide a loan from the bank's money. If you're doing something, you're raising money from the public, you use an investment banker. It's kind of like hiring a contractor in a sense. Why would I choose this one over that one? Right. Okay. And then their job is going out and helping you raise that money most cost effectively. Okay. So that's what they do. And then the asset manager is really representing other investors who have asked them to help them manage their, their assets. And then your job is to discern which companies or securities you want to invest in that will deliver the returns that the client is hoping for. And it gets exceptionally complicated beyond that simple statement because there's lots of different kinds of investors and they have different requirements and goals and aspects and so on. But that's roughly what an asset manager does okay. is manage pools of money on behalf of their clients. And then within there, they will have teams of, of analysts, and the analysts are usually focused on certain sectors or subsectors of the economy. So they become experts in those areas to help identify securities or companies to invest in. Okay. So help to solve that puzzle that you were talking about. How come everybody can talk a good game on profit or safety or whatever it might be, but how can I determine who's really doing, who's walking the walk? Yeah, well, you know, in the investment business, there are there are different kinds of investors. There are long-term investors like Terra Alpha that really look at the company and want to understand the company. At least there's a, a large part of the market that is what's called passive or index funds, which is that they will say, we want to own, we think the U.S. economy is going to do well. We're going to own a representative list of companies that are U.S. companies, and we'll just manage that based on those companies' size in the market. And that's a, just a passive, and okay. that doesn't require a lot of deep analysis beyond that. And then there's much more short-term oriented investors who are really trading stocks. And they they don't really necessarily care if it's a good company or a bad company. Okay. What they're trying to decide is if the stock price reflects the opportunity in that particular company. Yeah. If it, what direction it's going to move in and where do I want to be? Exactly. So yeah. that's a very more tactical, short-term oriented strategies, which meant there are many firms that do that successfully. There's many that don't do it successfully. The asset management business is one of those worlds where uh, I was making this analogy to someone recently. I mean, you think about in baseball, if someone's a really good hitter, 
they missed 70% of the time, right? Yeah. Batting 300 is fantastic. Yeah. So that means you miss 70, 70% of the time. In the investment business, if you're right on 55% of your portfolio, meaning it does really well, and the other 45% may not do as well as the market, you're still doing a great job in the scheme of things because you are helping your, your investors make more money than if they just own the market. Got it. So you're going to be wrong a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, a, in a lot of industries, like the one you, you've spent most of your career in, you, <laughs> you don't can't want be to wrong be that wrong. often. <laughs> no. Batting 500 or in businesses I've been in is not a recipe for getting home for dinner. <laughs> or if you're a lawyer, for that matter, or yeah. most things. There's a lot yeah. of careers where really you, you, the expectations are very high. Yeah. So it's an, it's an interesting business that regard because you do also learn a lot about your tolerance for risk. Yeah. So anyway, we're kind of getting so, off subject there. No, but that's a helpful digression, at least for me. So you finish up B-School and you've gotten a bunch of insights from all these case studies and still kind of a bit of a dicey economy and hiring scene, I think, if I remember when you finished. What did you hope to do? What, at that point, what was your line of sight on where you'd like to go and be? You know, I did go down the decision tree of management consulting, investment banking, and asset management. And probably the other big distinction between investment management, investment banking, consulting, and asset management is the first two, investment banking and consulting, you are very much at the beck and call of your client. You need to get on the road to do the meeting. Both are notoriously long hour, you know, just constant work kind of on the on the road kind of jobs. The asset management business, not so much. I mean, definitely more of like, you know, you get paid for having making good decisions, but you don't get paid more if you work longer hours. It's only if you make good decisions. Yeah. And that appealed to me. I like that idea. Anything about the culture of those sectors strike you at this time? I mean, you know, I think investment banking, I think, you know, liars, poker, Wolf of Wall Street, you know, eat or be eaten. It's, I just know in my core, math smarts and finance smarts notwithstanding, I would not succeed in those environments. Sure wouldn't be happy. Well, it certainly wasn't attractive to me. So I'll put it, I'll leave it at that. Investment banking or the management consulting roles. Though, I mean, probably the main issue about management consulting, and there's different versions of it. The kind I'm talking about is really strategic management consulting, where you will go into a company and spend a couple of weeks and then provide a report on an issue they are looking for insight on. To me, the downside about that was you you kind of did all the work, you had the report, and then you left and they could take it or not take it. And you never really knew. You weren't involved with the actual final decision or the actual implementation. And you were doing something else by the time they figured out whether they're going to do it or not. But I know a lot of people who've been investment bankers and consultants who are very smart, thoughtful people, but it just wasn't for me. And so I ended up, Ellen was at this time still in grad school at Brown. And um, I ended up very fortunately, getting a job at a trust bank in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, right out of undergrad. I mean, sorry, out of business school. And um, I was exceptionally happy. I was, you know, just started out from scratch in the in there as, as an analyst covering a number of, of industries in the U.S. and learning the trade. So I was very fortunate to work for a decent sized firm. It was managing $2 billion at the time, which back in the 80s was, you know, big, yeah. a big amount of money. And um had some very smart people, and I learned a lot about the industry uh, that first couple of years there. You said in another interview I came across, you, you called that period of your life a trial by fire. 
what was the ethos there? Was it sort of, oh, here's a new guy, throw him in the lake and see if he can swim or some training, some, you know, gray beards mentoring you? Um, well, it was pretty much, I got hired. I was an equity analyst. I was told I'm covering a quarter of the U.S. economy. Uh, I was covering all the utilities, which is telecom, electric utilities, all the media companies, all the industrial chemicals, consumer products, a whole bunch of things. And, you know, I'd never done this job before. I mean, I never had bought a stock in my life. And so I was sort of like given my office drawers full of files. There were no computer, we didn't have a computer and said, good luck. Did they tell you what you're supposed to produce? I mean, I, I've worked in some atmospheres that are very notorious for lack of clear instructions, just sort of there's your office, go for it. And you figure out what the hell that meant you're supposed to do. Is that what it was like? It was a little bit. I mean, a little, you know, I knew enough to know that we own certain companies. So we had to focus on the industries that we had already owned companies in the portfolio, clients' portfolios. I learned that at that time, there was what's called the, the Wall Street analysts, the sell side analysts were a very different breed than they are today. These were often people, because at that time, the investment banker and the sell side analyst was the same person. So they, they knew the companies. They often were both representing the companies in the markets as well as providing research for people like me and the bet was called the buy side. So I had the ability to call them and go to New York and spend time with them. And I learned from them. That's who I really learned from, not from the people at the bank I was at. There were a few people who would, I could sit in their office and ask questions. But it was really just about, I had learned through college. I and mean, one of the great things I learned, I developed a skill at, at Wayne & Mary of being, uh, of doing research. And, you know, when you're a liberal arts student, you have to, you, you get the opportunity to learn about a lot of things. You have to figure out how to refine down and make, draw conclusions, whether it's an English class or a government class or whatever. And so you had to develop that methodology of both research as well as writing skills, which are definitely applicable in the investment business. And then I had a finance degree from in business school. So I had learned a lot about some of the, the aspects I needed to know. And then I immediately started taking what's called the CFA, the Charter Financial Analyst Program, which is a three-year torturous process of lots of learning. It's like going back to school again, but you do that on your own. So I was doing that as well. So there's a lot of things, but they were really pretty much my own initiative. There wasn't a program they have where I was told, you know, sit down and we're going to teach you how to do this. Yeah. So you research, let's say, two of the companies in your portfolio. So you you're managing these on behalf of some outside customer or client. And what happens then? I mean, is there a group meeting periodically to talk about what do we think of the companies we're holding? Which ones are doing well? Should we move money out of something and into something else? Or did you have a chunk of companies that you would also do that part? You do your research, come to a conclusion and just change the investments. How does that work? Yeah, so this was a trust bank, and the trust bank means there was a lot of individuals who had their money at that bank who was representing, you know, taking care of their money and managing it for them. We had portfolio managers who were really relationship people who were helping their clients, you know, sort of, you know, you think about the Beverly Hillbillies and you had the, the bank they would always go to and talk to their yeah. banker. It was sort of that kind of thing. And so the, those portfolio managers relied on me to keep them up to date on the companies that they okay. had invested up for their clients and recommendations and all the analysts would, and then they would decide whether they were going to keep owning it or not. But so I, my job was to keep them informed, 
make them feel like we were on top of the situation so they give comfort Got to it. their clients and make sure that, you know, they were in companies that are going to do well over the long term. So that's the bank in Providence and you're learning the ropes and climbing the ladder a bit. And then Ellen finishes her doctoral degree. What happened then? Yeah, a couple of things. So actually in the between, I, I changed jobs and went to a bank in Philadelphia called PNC Financial, which most people have heard of PNC. And did the same job, but instead of covering a quarter of the S&P, I was actually assigned 15 companies because they had a much bigger research team. And I learned to get much deeper in understanding a company at that point, because I was covering literally, I mean, a quarter of the S&P 500, which means it was, you know, yeah. you do the math. Right. Um, and so there's a very big difference in the kind of work you do when you're talking about that. And I really think I learned then how to really deeply understand a company. Then Ellen, at that point, has finished her graduate program and gets hired to go work at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in L.A. We'll just call it L.A. because it's not really L.A., but, you know. But it's not Philadelphia. <laughs> it's not Philadelphia. So I resigned from there and we moved out. And we had, a, at the time, a little over a one-year-old son. So she went to work and I stayed home and took care of Ryan while I looked for a job. Because I, huh? you know, started from scratch, and it actually took about six months. But there was really six really wonderful months because we spent a lot of time together. I shot a lot of basketballs, and I made a lot of phone calls. So it was a, it was a great time, and I was fortunate enough to have ended up getting hired by a firm that I had never heard of, and most people still today have never heard of, called Capital Group Capital Research, which manages um, the American Funds, which is a large series um, mutual fund company. Many people um, know it because of some of the individual funds like Growth Fund of America or yeah. um, Washington Mutual and so on. So I started there in 1990 to some degree starting over again because this was a much bigger firm, much more established. And most of the my colleagues that I was hired around had not gone to the fifth best business school in Boston, but perhaps <laughs> went to the <laughs> well, the top five business schools in the country. Yeah. So I was definitely the, uh, I think our research director referred to me as their blue collar analyst. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. Which thanks, I, I took this for that warm welcome. <laughs> yeah. Well, as he said, it's a wonderful person. And, but I think she, you know, they kind of, she felt, they felt they were taking a chance on someone who hadn't gone to the, one of the best business schools. So do I really yeah. know my stuff, which obviously I took as a challenge to uh, prove otherwise, which yeah. I think ultimately that worked out. That was a great opportunity. And Capital was renowned for very deep fundamental research of companies on a global scale, mass great resources to do what, you know, whatever. I'll spend a lot of time traveling, meeting with management of companies, going through factories and facilities and meeting with government officials and doing all the, a much more robust set of, of research than we did at PNC, you know, really trying to find new areas of information that would add value that would kind of help us outperform and beat our competition by having better returns for our investors. Yeah. You, you proved yourself evidently in that case, because you rose up the ranks at Capital and eventually were managing a, a huge segment of the portfolio. Something like $26 billion? Well, $26 billion of what was a trillion-dollar asset manager. So Still. I was, yeah, I mean, it, was, it depends how you look at it. But yes, it was definitely, I was one of the lead managers in, in several of the funds. And 
it was a combination of being in the right place at the right time and, and you know, obviously doing a decent job of, of what I was, you know, asked to do. The thing that was very fortunate for me is I was always very interested in kind of always taking on new challenges and learning new things. And going back to that international trade and finance class, I knew from a very early time when I started in the investment business that I, I really wanted to be focused globally and not just on the U.S., and it wasn't because I didn't think U.S. companies were great companies, but where they were growing was largely outside the U.S., mm-hmm. even if they were yeah. U.S. companies. I mean, so you needed to know about the world if you were going to successfully invest even in U.S. companies. And so that was, you know, and it goes back to that whole foreign service. I wanted to see yeah. the world. So I was very fortunate to be in a place where I actually got to travel a lot, going to, you know, spending a lot of time in developed economy. Uh, lived abroad, lived in London uh, for about seven years altogether, and just had an incredible set of experiences with a lot of very smart people. So it was a great experience and you know, certainly formative for my, the rest of my career. So you know, 19 years and 10 years running this portfolio. So, somewhere in there, you said when you went to the Trust Bank in Rhode Island, you know, I've never made an investment in my life. Somewhere between Rhode Island and this point in capital, I, I assume you started to become an investor yourself as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, you know, actually, ironically, the 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 first thing I actually bought a stock a stock in was when I was at PNC, and I bought a, a stock in a company called People's Express, which was an airline that was set up to be affordable flights between U.S. and in Europe. And you know, kind of thought, well, this is kind of cool. He's trying to actually provide a something of value, something that was always a luxury good that only very wealthy could afford, you know, flights. I thought this is going to be great. It's going to really open up a lot of new opportunities. It didn't do well. No. <laughs> I think anyone who at the time was aware of it knew that didn't work out. And I learned a couple of good lessons about like best intentions, but that was sort of a personal investment. I mean, professionally, I was learning my craft, but you know, sometimes you, you could basically as a professional investor, you can't really invest in anything that you actually know what you're talking about because ah. that's a conflict of interest. So you, if personally you're going to buy stuff, it has to be something that you're not otherwise involved with. Got it. It's like not gambling at the casino you work in. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So the first major investment we made was we actually were offered to buy stock in the company I worked at, Capital. Ah. And that was a pretty smart decision, but we had very little money. I mean, Ellen and I had very little. And so it was a big risk for us. We had to borrow money in order to make that investment. And then, but then over time, we started having a little bit more money and started thinking about investing our money. At the same time, I was thinking about the consequences of how we were, and I was investing professionally, uh, which is recognizing that this world, which had been when I was born, 3 billion people was suddenly more like 7 billion people. And the 7 billion people had three or four times the economic capacity that, you know, because of the cap per capita income. And we're starting to really tap into using resources at a scale that was starting to impact our global system or our planetary system. And that's when I really started thinking about the consequences of the investments that both I was doing professionally and then we might personally. Most when I was at Capital, though, most of the money we invested was invested in our funds because of the issue I, I mentioned. I yeah. mean, we couldn't really personally be buying and selling stocks and companies. But it was it was that kind of awakening of like the fact that this isn't in a vacuum. I mean, I think a lot of us thought we were operating in a vacuum. We we're investing in companies and companies are doing this and it has no consequences to society or the environment. It's just 
this is a company and they hire people and they sell things to com- people, right. but everything else is not their, their issue, their problem. But it was increasingly clear that that's a false you know, narrative because everything has consequences. And starting to realize that thinking about it, I'm working for a firm that's managing it is the large, was literally the largest active asset manager in the world. And I'm, you know, managing one of the largest amounts of money at that firm. I can't really say that I'm not having impact through that investing. Right. And I was increasingly mindful of the fact that that impact was not positive. (laughs) (laughs) Were you really explicitly aware of the negatives or just kind of increasingly aware that all the environmental factors that were rising in people's concerns were, they're not in, they're just not in the equations for the investment decisions that were being made, right? I mean, bad water you dumped into a river is not on your balance sheet. You don't pay anything for it. It's, you privatize the benefit of being able to just dump that water. And we socialized across all of us the consequence of that. So was that what you were starting to realize? We're not we're not taking these things into account in the way we're doing business or or really were you seeing more directly? I'm helping companies do things that are making harm. Yeah, it was a little bit of both. I think partly, you know, I'm literally traveling around the world. I mean, you go to Beijing in the mid-90s and you go again in the early O's and you go again in the late 10s and you see what has happened as China has man- increasingly was building out their manufacturing base, largely to provide products and services to to the US and to Europe. And you saw the change in the cities, you saw this ancient transportation going from bikes to cars, you know, scooters to bike to cars over, you know, literally in over a 10 year period. And you can see directly the amount of the pollution starting up going from perfectly clean to can't see, can't breathe. Um, And that gets repeated in different countries around the world. Eastern Europe became, you know, when the wall came down and it became a manufacturing hub as well. And you start seeing these consequences, keeping in mind, of course, that I am still married to a planetary geologist who... Yes, there is that pillow talk influence. (laughs) Yeah, on our (laughs) literally our second date in college, she's chatting with me about the runaway greenhouse gas effect on the planet, uh, the surface of Venus. Yep. Um, So... The idea of climate change and greenhouse gas emissions was not a new subject to me, but again, it wasn't something that I thought of I could do anything about in my work role, or either I was having an impact or could do anything to uh. alleviate. But it certainly became clear that I could no longer carry on that narrative of like, well, I, I may be having, even if I'm having an impact, I can't do anything about it. And it's not my problem. It's yeah. not my problem. So I'll give money to the Nature Conservancy with some of my, my successfully earned you know, money, and I'll, I'll do the right thing personally, but I, there's nothing else I can do about it. And yeah. so it is what it is. But, but I came to an intersection of those where I was like, I was in my 40s. I was like, this is, I've reached the pinnacle of this career, and I can just keep doing this for the next 10, 20, 30 years. And be very, you know, hopefully successful at it and make a lot of money and help. But I will be knowingly a contributor to this problem. I can't, I can no longer not know that. It's like that known, known things. Once you know it, you can't unknow it. And it was something that I think it was ultimately then, well, what is, what is causing this? What is, why is this happening? And it goes to that point you exactly, you made is we had created a whole system that allowed for companies to not take any responsibility for those consequences. It was in mundane of things as accounting systems and SEC regulations. 
those things were made externalities. So they were not right. things the company had to think about because they didn't affect the bottom line. And therefore, the shareholders didn't have to think about it. So therefore, the CEO didn't have to think about it. Yeah. So you walked away from capital at that juncture or soon after. And I, I'm curious what you said to your colleagues in your departure letter. Well, literally, I wrote a letter and they knew this because I had helped to create a team internally that didn't last um, called the Climate Change Cluster. And it was a look at a group that was trying to figure out if there's some way we could reconcile this. We can develop methodologies to solve for risks and opportunities that companies maybe have, particularly environmental factors, particularly climate change. And at the time in the mid-O's, that was just not it was not possible. There yeah. wasn't the information sets or just, and there certainly was not the willpower to pursue it. So that really was the final effort I made the last couple of years. And then I just get, said, look, I'm, I've had a great experience here, but I'm going to focus the rest of my career on climate change and working in the environmental space to see if I can help make a difference there. Because, you know, it was sort of that tombstone test, you know, do I want to be known as a hardworking, successful portfolio manager who generated better returns than other portfolio managers? Or do I want to actually feel like I've made the world better through helping to address climate change? And that to me was an easy answer. It was made easier because I've been successful enough that I could choose that. So it was a little easier, but you know, it was, it was to me and Ellen was hundred percent supportive of it the right thing to do. So that's what I did. But then I said, what am I going to do now? And I, it was the answer was- yeah, how do you start? <laughs> yeah. And it was really kind of realized I needed to, I wanted to work with some of the environmental NGOs who I knew were, who were very aware of these issues, obviously by definition, and were starting to focus on how to engage with corporates and investors to how to change, but honestly had no idea how to do that. Because that's sort of around the time frame, maybe off by a couple of years, where several groups, notably, say, Stanford's Environmental Institute, start conceiving of the idea of natural capital, trying to find a way to help countries, communities, and companies put a valuation on the quality of the water in that river and start to bring, move those items that have been externalities that the corporate world has been allowed by social decision to just ignore move them onto the radar screen and, you know, move them onto the balance sheet, frankly. Yeah, there were there were a lot of organizations that started, I don't know exactly when the Stanford program started, but like the Carbon Disclosure Project, there's something called True Cost and others that started in the early, uh, like around 2000. Yeah. And they were doing, there was sort of a second wave of organizations that were kind of coming at it with a very clear orientation towards this gap between the environmental knowledge base and the corporate world. Because the earlier generation, National Resource Defense Council and the Environmental Defense Council and the Nature Conservancy and Sierra Club had been very much in their own areas. And obviously some of them have been doing regulation and law around you know, forcing governments to enforce law, uh, environmental laws. But they tended to be more focused on just the, the blame game uh, with corporates and telling companies and calling out companies for doing bad things. And to me, that was not a, well, it, it had value. It wasn't actually going to cause change because most people don't respond well to being told they're bad. That doesn't generally cause them to say, reflect and then start being good. It just doesn't really work that way. It's not human nature. 
and I felt like they were missing an understanding of how complicated it is, it is if you're the CEO of a company or senior people or senior investment, investment person to actually navigate the rules and accounting and all the other things that you're given. So, you know, that you want to go in and, and talk in a way that you understand the challenges of what they're doing, but then make sure they understand the things they are doing that really are going to hurt them in the long run. And how do we solve together? And some of it is things like understanding the value of natural capital. Some of it is understanding the flaws in the accounting system. So you also had the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board that started actually later, more like in 12 or 13. But a lot of organizations have really come at this at a systems level to really kind of solve for some of these system flaws. And that's still really evolving, but it's essential because everyone, most people agree that there's flaws in the system. Yeah. And those yeah. fixes are somewhat mundane. But of course, we've also gotten to a point where we can't just fix the system and everything will be fine. We actually have to make some significant changes to the, the reality on the ground right now and then fix the system so we don't re replicate it. So you start off on that learning journey. Was it clear in your mind at that point whether you would land at one of those organizations and you know, work to make this impact from within? When and how did you come to the realization that what you really wanted to do was start a company of your own and apply you know, all that learning to a really very different way of characterizing and evaluating companies? Yeah, so I spent the bulk of the time, about five years, a lot of it with Nature Conservancy on the Virginia board, but also very involved with some of the national uh, leadership on some big issues. You know, that was about the time where the big, there was a big effort around a cap and trade bill in Washington that was failed, but it was a big push by all the big environmental organizations and others. They had been doing a lot more of work with natural-based solutions with companies. So trying to understand how they were doing that. And I spent a year with the Carbon Disclosure Project in London working with them. And really what I had decided, I was the capital markets I had gotten more and more short-term was definitely not thinking about these issues broadly. And I just had decided I was done with that. And it was, you know, beyond repair largely. So I from me, from my own role, I thought I was done with that. But what I ultimately came back to was that. You know, that same point I, I learned when I took that class in college at International Trade and Finance, you have to deal with the reality, which is the power in the economy is the capital markets. And if you don't fix it, we're not going to fix anything. And yet I also believe in capitalism. I wholeheartedly believe it's the right economic system to create the most value if done properly. And so I came to the conclusion that Actually, there was information available on companies, enough information on companies on their environmental performance that you could actually build a better mousetrap of an investment firm that had at its core an understanding about the, the realities on the ground on our planet around big environmental issues. And that if you built into your assessment of companies, that reality and what those companies are doing to manage the challenges that are going to be created by those realities and, and also what they were doing to mitigate those risks, that you can actually do two things. You can actually improve on in the investor's financial returns because you're doing a better job managing risk and opportunities. And you can actually help drive a better environmental outcome because you're pushing companies and therefore 
their competitors to be more efficient in how they use these and impact natural resources. So it was sort of like, wow, actually, that is what I need to be doing. And I tried to get other firms to do it and have me thought, you know, well, I don't want to start my own firm. That's a lot of work. But I could manage this. I could. I knew how to do the management investment side. That's that's relatively easy. But do I want to do all the other things? But back in 2013, 14, there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, it was kind of ironic because now everyone wants to, a proper, credible ESG sustainable investment strategy. Six years ago, seven years ago, no one wanted yeah. that. That was not a flavor of the day for sure. Now, it was still the echo of the Great Recession and a lot of things were different. And, you know, the reality was the writing was on the wall of where this was going and where it needed to go. So, you know, I think I'm glad I'm glad we just started. I started from scratch and did it the right that way, because then we could do it the right way. Because I mean, you start something with a clean sheet. We've seen that with a number of, you know, startups in recent years. If you just start with the premise and you have a very strong intentionality and you do it, you bring in the right people and you have smart people on your team and you design something from scratch, you can make some significant improvements over legacy, you know, uh, approaches that, you know, you have to live with the existing stuff that you've got in your legacy business. You can only tweak them so far, but yeah. So there's, you know, if you do open the pages of the Wall Street Journal or pretty well any financial publication these days, those three letters, ESG, environment, social governance, they seem to be just everywhere now. And people who have money to put into companies, big asset managers are talking much more about it and using their votes as shareholders in stronger ways. But what what is your take on that ESG movement writ large today? Is it 10% traction and 90% rhetoric? Is it the reverse? Is it going in the right direction and being thought about the right way? I am very happy that the awareness is so much higher today. I will say it is not an uncommon occurrence for me to be talking to someone, including very sophisticated, established people in the investment business, who still will ask, now, could you remind me what ESG stands for? (laughs) Um, So they may know the governance part, but they may not fully understand it, and they don't necessarily know it. And that's where the risk is, is that there's a lot of participants who know they need to say ESG and they know they need to include it in their marketing materials, but they haven't yet really unpacked that and thought about what does that really mean in terms of how they invest or why it matters. But you know, once you start talking about it, you, it they, you would definitely see all the asset managers realizing as they talk about more and they get more people asking questions, they have to build capability. They have to start to figure out ways to explain at least how they incorporate it. And then they will therefore start to actually do it. I mean, it's just like in the early world with carbon disclosure projects and other organizations, the idea was if you ask companies to disclose certain information around, say, greenhouse gas emissions, at the very least, they'll have to start measuring it. And if you, as we all know, if you if you measure it, you can manage it. And if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. Uh-huh. So Creating all these expectations of, of asset managers to think about ESG is going to lead them to be doing more work on it. The risk we have right now is that not all asset managers are actually doing anything robust in how they incorporate ESG into their investing, and yet their clients think that they have now moved into an ESG-oriented fund. And it's very difficult for even sophisticated entities that's whose job it is to assess 
asset managers, there's firms, these consulting firms and those, et cetera, who have due diligence teams and all. It's very hard for them to do that. So for the average individual to really know if their asset manager is actually truly doing this is a really big challenge. But the good news is the SEC is very concerned about this, and they are definitely starting to look at how to create rules to force companies that say they're doing ESG investing, whatever they define that, they actually have some way of showing they're actually doing it. Is one of the problems that there's no agreed upon set of what things to measure and measurement methodologies? I mean, in, in the just plain finance side of a business, you know, debt equity ratio, book to sales, as you learned in the finance program at your B school, there are established standard ways you measure those things and you report those things. So I can look at four companies and see what their metrics are on those points and have confidence that I'm getting a really level playing field insight to those companies. Where are we in reaching that kind of assurance and clarity with the ESG metrics and reporting? Right. And and this is, you introduced a couple of very key challenges in this field, which is most investors, professional investors have been taught how to do how to incorporate financial information into a cash flow analysis, a discounted cash flow analysis to figure out how to value a company. And so things that don't necessarily affect the cash flow or the balance sheet, they don't really know what to do with. Even if there are metrics, they wouldn't even necessarily know what to do with it. Now you could use it, you could say it could affect your discount rate because there's a risk premium, blow, you know, there's things like that. But, it but is, that's not done yet. Yeah. But that's not done yet. And we don't even have agreed upon metrics. It's even something in the environmental, social, and governance factors, something as well established as governance as something that investors consider. Who's on the board? Is the CEO the chair of the board? Those things are pretty well known, but people still don't know what to do with that information. Do you inherently pay a lower premium for a company that has a CEO and chair or do you not? So a lot of these things, but these are the things that actually you can use in an investment analysis to develop a much better understanding of a company. So in the research area, this is referred to as a mosaic of a company. So you have lots of pieces that you put together and you create something that gives you a better picture of that company. But it's not a highly digitizing, a really high crisp picture. It's a mosaic, which is, you know, we all know what a mosaic actually looks like. So you're understanding that and it includes things like governance and social performance that may be as simple as a glass door review or if the company has systematic problems with pollution at for certain facilities in certain communities and they don't really deal with it or which can be a social and an environmental issue. So there's a lot of these things that can be very fundamental to the business, but still hard to incorporate into yeah. a traditional cash flow model. But we are getting better at the amount of data that's available The environmental side is much easier. The data sets are clearer and there's much more data. The social is incredibly difficult because not even everyone would agree on necessarily what the right things to be measuring, much less how to measure them. And the governance is complicated because you can just simply say, we're not going to invest in any company that has two classes of stock. Well, that doesn't necessarily lead to better outcomes. It's just arbitrary decision. Right. It really depends on still who's running that company. You know, they could be running it very well with two classes of stock, but they could another company that could be running it very badly with two classes of stock. So we're coming to the end of our time here. I have to ask you the 
United Nations just released a couple of days ago the latest IPCC international panel, intergovernmental panel on climate change, their latest assessment. And if you think of that take, that analysis of where we are in terms of living on this planet and the trends in the natural world and the trends and habits in the capital markets, where do you come out? Do you come out with some optimism and hope? Do you come out worried? Both. I'm an optimist by nature. And if you're uh, if you're either in the environmental world or you're a, a long-only active equity manager, if you're not an optimist, you're definitely in the wrong business because you know you have to it's kind of saying there's still opportunity to address these issues and there's opportunity in in addressing them properly. Where we are in, in facto in both the capital markets side is going back to the baseball analogy, we're still in the warm-up deck, getting we've got our uniform on, we know what what we're trying to do. We've gotten the signal, the original signal of what we're supposed to do, but we haven't gotten to the plate to actually doing the work to really change how our economies uses and impacts the environment, environment, natural resources. Because obviously, as the science says, we're still continuing to increase the carbon intensity of the economy. We still are continuing to use more water than we can regeneratively use every year. And we've seen that manifested in many places. We still use too many raw materials and create too much waste, and we're, that's still growing. We're, we're having increased biodiversity loss. We're having increased deforestation. We're having declining soil health. So all the markers are still going in the wrong direction, and in some cases are significantly off to where we need them to be, particularly greenhouse gas emissions, right? The good news is I think we know largely how to it back onto a trajectory and most of those things, not all of them, frankly. I don't think we really know how to feed 10 billion people with the amount of actual soil we have, as an example. But I don't think they're insurmountable, but really there are very few companies that have demonstrated they can actually decrease their use and impact of the, on these resources at a significant level. And there's only a few of those companies. Um, and there's thousands of companies. So we're the good news is we kind of know what we have to do and we know how to do a lot of it. The bad news is we haven't really started doing too much of it. And a lot of it comes back to the fact that it still isn't priced into companies' operations. I mean, you know, what are the consequences if they don't do it? And that is starting to change. And we're starting to see some real change with at least the information and starting to see like with the EU taxonomy and, and carbon markets and so on, some recognition of that. So the time is definitely here. The time was 10 years ago. We should have been doing this, but we're not too late. And we know there's a lot of ways we, you know, the trickiest thing on the carbon side, which is the greenhouse gas emission side, is not going to be decarbonizing transportation or the electric grid. We know how to do that. It, it, What's you know, it going to be? It's all the rest of the economy where we use oil and gas. So right now you see the oil and gas companies and the big companies that make petrochemicals are building capacity so they can use the oil and gas that's not being used for won't won't be used for transportation in the future to be making more things out of plastic and you know you think about everything we have in our household and everything we use and all the things that are made with plastic and plastic and oil-based product it is replete through the whole system. And so we have to be really, that gets back to circularity of the economy versus linear. So there's a lot of other really hard things that companies are gonna have to do that will be 
probably left a little bit to the side because everyone would be focusing on just decarbonized transportation and the built environment and the energy grid. But those are still big steps forward that really make a difference. Obviously, we know job one is the greenhouse gas emissions reduction. So your grandkids are a little too young yet to have this conversation or to appreciate it, I suspect. But I'd love to know when you tell your granddaughter about Terra Alpha Investments, and true disclosure, I'm an investor in Terra Alpha because I believe strongly that you've got a better mousetrap model there, and I want to be a part of helping that have its effect. But when you talk with your granddaughter about what grandpa does, what do you say to her? Well, she's a cutie, and she's only nine months old. But when I think about it, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that we have this very small firm being able to demonstrate that actually there is a path forward. There are both investors and companies that are actually passionate about this, that recognize that there's a better way to run a company, better way to run, to invest that actually serves both the broader environmental needs of our community as well as their own financial needs. And we kind of changed the narrative on that, that those two things were actually, when we started Terra Alpha, the most common thing was those two were incongruous. You couldn't generate better outcomes if you incorporate environmental costs because that would inherently raise costs for companies. And so I think changing that narrative and being part of that conversation is the thing I'm probably proudest. The fact is people still today still question that. And you know we have something now we can show them and say, well, we've been doing it now for six and a half years. And so you can't argue with success. So I'm very proud of what we've we've done and that, you know, today it's becoming so so much more talked about. And if we played a little bit of part in that, I'm I'm very happy about it. And I feel like I've done, you know, I've been very dedicated to what I said I was going to do when I left Capital 12 years ago, which is to really focus on climate change, which is our number one focus area for our firm because it's the number one issue that's going to affect our future. Well, I'm proud to be a small part of Terra Alpha because I think it is a company that really is showing us a way, a way that we can live more wisely while also living well on this planet and give us a chance of moving our trajectory back within the planet's operating systems. Every spaceship you know, with its environmental and life support systems, every spaceship's systems have operating limits. So does our little home planet here. And... Uh, Really love being part of an effort to steer back in a saner direction so we can, your granddaughter can grow up and have a good life on this planet. That's the dream, right? Yeah. That's what we're all working for. And thank you, Kathy. I really appreciate the way, the insights you give us in, in helping us on our board. My pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, Along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.